0: Hello there, space fans, and welcome to another episode of the Supercluster podcast. This is Robin, the chief of content of Supercluster, and our creative director here, Jamie. How's it going, Jamie? It's going well. How are you doing? I'm good, and uh, it's great to be back on the podcast with you on our second episode of our new format. And we thank our listeners who are bearing with us through this process. Jamie and I have been also working on another big thing for Supercluster that we are about to unveil. I'm going to let Jamie tell you all about that.
1: Yeah, so it's it's really exciting. It's been a long time in the making. I guess I'll back up a little bit and provide some context. Since the beginning of Supercluster, we've been trying to create utilities that make it easier to be a space fan. And this started in earnest with our launch tracker, which was there to allow you to know when anything is leaving Earth and watch those live streams when they're available. And hopefully lots of you are familiar with that. But what we're adding next, if you think of that as the launches, the spaceships, what we're adding next is space travelers. The thing that we're launching soon is called the Astronaut Database. It's the first complete record, a library of every single living being, humans, animals, and robots that has ever flown to space. And we not only aggregated this data, but we made it navigable so you can move through it in fun ways. You get to see each astronaut's stats, but you also see who their crewmates were. And then if you look at their crewmates, you can see their stats, see what missions they went on. And it creates this really fun kind of six degrees of the space program, behavior. So we're really excited
0: for that. Right, Jamie, on top of everything you've just said, the database and the utility itself, we really give it the super cluster once over. It's design aesthetic you're expecting. And the ease of use, we hope, is something that really draws people in. And just like
1: everything we do, we try and weave storytelling into that experience. So as you move through and read about the astronauts and see that data and information, you start to see the implied story behind it, which is really fun.
0: Now, Jamie, I know you led a lot of the research behind the utility, and obviously that's a mountain of research and a mountain of data. You also learned a lot of things about the content that you were putting together here, but we also realized that there were some mistakes out there, some things that weren't quite clear. And you know, we really attempted with this database to try and not only gather the information to make sure it's correct as well.
1: Absolutely. And there, you know, there's a lot of great resources out there for people who've tried to aggregate this kind of stuff. And we are tremendously thankful for the people who've done that kind of work to dig it all up. But nobody has really gotten it all in one place and all accurate. There's always been some kind of holes in it, or it's been presented in a way that's not that useful. You know, nobody really wants to just look at a giant spreadsheet. You need to create an experience around that information.
0: Now, no joke, what we've been doing at Cape Canaveral is using spreadsheets this whole time, and that is <laughs> that is not a joke. In fact, Chris Gebhart, our supercluster contributor at <laughs> NASA Space Flight, who will be joining us momentarily to go through the long list of news that we've had this week. But Chris is famous for his spreadsheets. Sorry, Chris, we're you know, <laughs> your, spread, your legacy of spreadsheets there.
1: I mean, it is, is, I will say that the development of the astronaut database has involved some pretty intense spreadsheets on the back end, but it was all about forming those and then getting away from (laughs) them as soon as possible. But yeah, I think these are the largest spreadsheets that I've ever created, because not only are we having all these astronauts, but we're starting to add a lot of missions, you know, backdated missions, and it gets into uh, quite large amounts of data. You know, some of the interesting things that we found is sometimes there are pieces of data that just seemed to not be out there. We would look at, you know, trying to figure out how long someone had been on a spacewalk and we couldn't get it down to the minute. Like we could get it within five minutes, but we called NASA, we looked at all these different records. And so there's these little points where I wanna go and find somebody and just ask like, did you not write it down or did someone not, was someone not setting their watch? So that was great. And also one of my favorite things was diving into the animals that flew to space because there's so many interesting stories there. One of my favorite facts that we learned that I love to tell everybody is that the record for the most number of flights to space is shared by two people and a dog. So there's (laughs) no human being who has flown to space more times than a dog has.
0: Insane. And what I've come to learn is they launched one cat to space.
1: Yes. Uh, yes. The French trained a cat, sent it to space. And, you know, if anybody knows cats, you can guess why that was the first and last cat that was <laughs> right. en- enlisted for duty. But yeah, the cat named Philisat. So we, you know, we have photos, of course, of all those great animals and you can read about them. And, and also they're listed as animal crewmates. Right. So if you look at an astronaut's card and you're looking at a mission that they were on, you'll see if there are any animals flying with them.
0: Amazing. I can't wait for everyone to see this app. We have begun beta testing this week. Quite a few space professionals have early access to the app. They'll be able to give us feedback and and do stuff like that. We're really excited to hear what folks think. We've already gotten some feedback and uh, it's been really amazing to hear how folks are using it. And some of the ideas they have to improve it already. As with everything on Supercluster, we're going to always improve this utility that you will see soon. It will be a version one and something that we're always improving on. Um, but Jamie, let's walk our listeners through the, we're going to be collaborating with the fine folks at the Spacecom Expo, and they will be uh, hosting us for a special keynote session with a Q&A. Jamie will be leading this particular talk on Astronaut Database. I will be a part of it as well to help answer questions and talk about Supercluster as a company. We are doing a second talk with Spacecom. Which we won't get into yet, but it's basically Mm -hmm. a popular culture presentation. Jamie and I love film. We love filmmaking. We love science fiction. So we're going to just chat about a lot of the inspiration that the space program took from pulpy science fiction and our long legacy of science fiction novels, films, and everything else. So maybe on next week's podcast, we'll preview that one. But Jamie, let's walk through the presentation that we're doing about the database. So it'll be on October 22nd at 1 p.m. It's between 1 and 2 p.m. Eastern time. Registration is free. Go to spacecomexpo.com. Also, check out our social media. Um, We have links popping up on Twitter. We'll we'll be on Instagram with promotion over the next few days. But Jamie, you want to walk us through what we're going to be doing and, and talking about?
1: yeah this will be the the, sort of the official launch of this feature uh, of our website and our app you know we're going to be essentially switching from the private beta to a a public release at that time and we're going to show everybody how to use the app give them some examples of all the fun stuff it can do but also give some background into the thinking behind it some of the cool stories that we dug up and and our plans for the future so that should be a lot of fun and then on that other the other talk which again we'll tease that a little bit more when we get closer to it but uh, I think it's it's going to be fun to find out all the intersection points between science fiction and science fact and how they share so much and they they trade back and forth all the time in ways that they may not even realize.
0: I have a feeling we're going to be seeing a lot of landing boosters and things that look like starship
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> there's lots of cool stuff. I mean, we we go way back. There's yeah. there's an amazing amount of predictive old science fiction yeah. out there. Great I
0: mean, stuff. science fiction is our greatest inspiration here in the space program. I feel like you can't find any other potent form of inspiration for what people do in the space industry. So it'll be really fun to look at that intersection, and I'm really excited about that talk. But Jamie and I have a lot in front of us uh, with this ADB talk and the presentation. One special thing about this presentation, I'm sure a lot of folks are used to technology releases and app releases. We will have the app available for you to use while we're presenting. Um, Well, we're going to try at least. (laughs) Jamie, we're trying to have the desktop at least available for people to use during the talk. So yeah I mean, all, all
1: signs just on, on the back end, all signs yeah. point to us being completely yeah. ready by then. So people should yeah. be able to use it on, on desktop or mobile, but yeah, it's, it'll be live, so you know this is going to be a different kind of conference anyway, But even right. if, it, if it was a big room of people, we have no problem if you put, pull out your phone or <laughs> your laptop and, yeah. Yeah. and follow along with, with us. We encourage you to try it out. And yeah. for people, just to be clear, for people who have the app, this is going to be a feature added on to the existing app. so you don't need anything right. new, you'll just have to download an update as normal.:
0: Right. You'll notice a a few changes in the launch tracker because of the astronaut database. You're going to see agencies. You're going to see countries. You're going to see a lot more crew, especially because crew launches are coming up. So, um, yes, while the astronaut database is its own utility, it is being added to the larger, broader supercluster app. So you only have to have that one app.
1: Yeah, I think it's great to point that out because that's how we approach all of our data manipulations is that, you know, now that we have this astronaut data, well, we have launches in our launch tracker. So that same piece of data goes over into the launch tracker. So if you see a launch that's, you know, we've got some crewed launches coming up. If you look at the crew on there, you're going to be able to tap right through into the astronaut database to learn more about those astronauts.
0: I know that I work here and so does Jamie, but we both love the app as space fans it's really nice as as geeks (laughs) i mean i spend hours on it just playing around with it we've definitely tested it with a few of our colleagues and friends out there a lot of our community knows tom cross an incredible photographer from the press pool he started with Supercluster, he shot a mission for us and then he went to work at spacex we hate you tom for leaving us Uh, but tom congratulations um, tom (laughs) (laughs) congratulations tom we love you and we hate you. But a couple of us were using the the app one morning testing it out. Um we you know we're one big giant family here. I think I was talking with Pauline Acklin, our West Coast photographer and John Krause, and We found an astronaut that looks just like Tom Cross. And then browsing <laughs> I I, th- I just think that knowing space folks they're going to browse this data and look at these incredible photos of these people and see themselves in it and, in, in a fun way, and in a weird way. Hey, look, that looks like yeah. me. We're excited about every aspect of the way people are going to use this app. I've been looking at the app, browsing everyone from different countries, looking at their faces, learning their names, reading about them and what they've done. It's. I've been working in spaceflight for five years now, especially human spaceflight. And this app opens a new world for me. And I think the hard work that our team has put in over the last couple of years really shows. And I think people are going to be really excited. And my last word on this is we built this app for our community, but we also built it for teachers, students, and families who are at home and students who are at home and looking for new ways to learn. And I think uh, that is our ultimate goal with this app.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's meant to be a reference that you can keep going back to when something about space comes up and you and you want to check back on it. And just to reiterate how much it was, you know, a work of passion to build this thing, like we we built it for the public, but we also we built it for ourselves because this is a, a good example of inventing something because you want it to exist in the world. And, the, the, right. you know, I think that all the care put in by the team really showed how much people wanted this to exist and be the best that it can be. And, like you said, there are so many stories that got revealed. And, you know, I've been a space fan my whole life, but there were still things where just by seeing it, the data next to each other, seeing it sorted and filtered has revealed to me, uh, you know, a whole new vision of what human spaceflight and even animal spaceflight has been uh, for that matter. So, you know, as, as we move forward, I'm sure we'll keep telling you some of those stories. You'll see them on social media and, and we hope you'll try it out when it's available in, in just about a week.
0: Yeah. And not to toot our horn too much here but we have another app dropping right after the astronaut mm-hmm. database as well. We'll talk about that one in a yeah. later episode.
1: I'll keep that one totally a secret for now, but you're right. We do have another really fun thing up our sleeve. That's been one of those, uh, it's been slightly backburnered, but it's exciting right. that it's, it's almost cooked.
0: Yeah, it's almost cooked. And we're really excited to create this unifying family of utilities that really inform on each other and tell a whole story. You know, I think that's where we're going in this direction. Um, we're creating, you know, these little pieces of a bigger puzzle, and I think we're always going to be adding to that body of work and always finding new ways to learn about space.
1: Yeah, I'm. You know, from the early days, I'm sure Robin saw me kind of pulling my hair out and and shouting this phrase: uh, "The database of all things space." Like I'm like I'm Doc Brown trying to invent <laughs> a time machine. the database of all things space. But that's been for the whole team. That's been one of those goals: is that someday we want to have all of this data, not just the launches and the astronauts but every rocket, every mission, every aspect of the history of space in one place. And so so we're
0: getting there. It's exciting times for Supercluster, and it's exciting times for the space community. We obviously have a reason to make this app because the human spaceflight family is growing ultimately. Uh, so with that, we'll let Jamie get back. We are both planning our presentations for the Spacecom conference, and we thank those folks at Spacecom for allowing us this platform to reveal our technology. And You know our labor of love with this app. Uh, Jamie, thank you. And we will have you back on the show next week to catch up on our progress there and some news. And I'm going to go over to Chris now. Excellent. Thanks. All right. And we have Chris back on the show. We're going to go through some news. Chris and I both watched the Blue Origin live stream today. They finally launched. Chris, how important is it that Blue Origin just
2: reflew a booster for the seventh time? Immensely important, and I want to make this very clear, not just when you look at it as something like of a race between suborbital rockets, which New Shepard is, and orbital rockets like the Falcon 9 that land. This is important across the board because the huge element for reusability has been dramatically reducing the cost of access to space, right? And and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, the two titans of the new commercial industry and era, have both made reusability a baked in product from the beginning across the board for their vehicles. And the way you get to that $200,000-ish per seat price tag on a future Blue Origin missions that you can just buy tickets for, for these suborbital flights, you get the price down really, really low by reusing the booster. Same as you reuse a plane, which is the favorite analogy that that Elon loves to make. So yeah. this is really important for, for Blue Origin, but also really demonstrating in a very public way. And, and I think in terms of a dollar figure that the public can kind of more understand, although, I mean, I don't have $200,000 sitting around to buy a ticket for this thing. But you know, two hundred thousand is a much more understandable number than the millions of dollars that it still costs for reuse orbital rockets. So, very important across the board. Yeah, I mean that
0: even that ticket price is for the one percenter. But these projects, like New Shepard and the New Shepard capsule, are what will eventually make space more accessible. And that's because the more we reuse a single booster or a single spacecraft the cheaper it is to actually use that vehicle. And uh, going back to Elon's analogy, he does use the plan analogy a lot, but I think he, he once used a bicycle analogy, even a small scale. Imagine yeah. you bought a bicycle and you rode that bicycle and then threw it away after a one-way trip to wherever you were going. I feel like that's the simplest way of understanding what our relationship with rockets for the last 50 years, this is prior to SpaceX and uh, prior to Blue Origin. Now, it's important to remember, SpaceX has achieved over 50 landings at this point, but I think it's really important to uh, note that SpaceX is bringing back these rockets from orbital space missions, and Blue Origin is still working its way up to that milestone. And their new Glenn rocket, which is being worked on down at Cape Canaveral, Blue Origin has completely reshaped the landscape outside of Kennedy Space Center. And have built giant rocket factories to build their orbital rocket. Chris, what's the update on like their progress on that rocket?
2: Yeah, so they actually talked about and, and focused on New Glenn a little bit in the webcast for the for the suborbital flight that they just successfully completed. Not really giving anything about a timeline, and, and there isn't a lot of there isn't new info since the last mm-hmm. time we talked about Blue Origin's schedule. They say 2021, it does still appear that there's a lot of work to do at the launch pad. And while we've seen tweets of them showing us the start of flight hardware fabrication, like the payload fairings, you know, there's still the long way to go on the BE-4 engine, which uses methane and liquid oxygen before it's ready. But but they did actually on this new Shepard booster that they just tested suborbitally. They actually had heat shield material that they plan to use on the new Glenn rocket. So they are actively testing stuff for new Glenn on new Shepard, which is pretty cool. A nice energy too. Yeah, that
0: is really cool. And speaking of tests on this mission. Uh, one of the <laughs> primary payloads on Blue Origin's test flight this morning was a uh, NASA Artemis moon landing. It, w- it was some sort of technology that would inform on future moon landings, right, Chris?
2: Yeah. So it, it it's part of what they envision as being like part of the eyes and the vision system for some of the landers, especially for the Blue Origin lander, right? right. Which is one of the three that that's been chosen in the first round of competition to build the lunar landing vehicles. And, you know, what better way to test that vision system than by actually giving it a chance to work on an active booster. Now, by work, we don't mean it was actually telling the booster, hey, this is how close to land we are. The booster was using its own flight software for that. But what it was doing and what they're able to do is actually take the real world data of the flight and compare that to what the software should have done and should have seen in terms of how high off the ground they were. What are the obstacles we're coming down toward? And that's actually one of the reasons why the flight got delayed in the first place. You mentioned at the beginning that this is a mission that they were finally able to launch after a weather scrub and a technical delay. And that weather scrub was actually because there were clouds and there are no clouds on the moon. So you had to have an absolutely clear day in which to launch and land this particular mission. And they got it. It was a really...
0: Beautiful liftoff and landing. What's great about the Blue Origin test campaigns is that you get two landings. You get the landing Mm -hmm. and the booster, which is really, really cool to watch. And you do, in our own little way, experience the sonic boom. You can actually hear it on the live stream. Uh, Obviously, it's not like being in person. But Chris and I know what that sonic boom is like at different levels. So hearing it on the live stream
2: is really fun. It was, and I'm sure you had the same thought I did when you did hear it on the live stream, where, which was, oh, that microphone was turned down really low. <laughs> yes, it's a lot louder in reality.
0: Yeah. They definitely prepared for that. And it was really cool seeing the capsule come down soon mm-hmm. after the booster. And I think I heard on the live stream, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but they're only a few flights away from finally putting people in that capsule for this flight.
2: That's what they said. And they, and they even had a video that they showed in there of practice sessions that they did with this booster while it was on the pad with the capsule of using Blue Origin employees to practice the crew ingress and suit up and strap in. Well, not suit up, but Very, ingress. very, yeah. Very lucky Blue Origin employees there. Yes, <laughs> yeah. might, might I say there was a bit yeah. of jealousy? Um, yes. yes. <laughs> really.
0: yeah. You made a g- really good point on Twitter that I yeah. wanted to point out. You said that we're used to seeing the crew access arm swing back during crew launches. Yeah, um, That doesn't... Ha- <laughs> happen with blue origin right
2: yeah it, it really doesn't so so their sort of gantry doesn't swing back out of the way like we're used to seeing on apollo and shuttle and crew dragon now and, and what we'll we'll see with starliner as well it's not even what we're used to seeing with the russian Soyuzes. spoiler alert which have a huge clamshell that comes back this is just a little like extension of a, of a gangway that pulls back at the very last very very close to liftoff like within two and a half minutes and of course, we're used to seeing that arm come back minutes and, and sometimes, you know, dozens of minutes uh, before liftoff. So right. it's it's always kind of jarring, but then yeah. you have to remember, right, right, right. This is a tourism <laughs> thing, right? right. You, know, yes, you, exactly. you, you need that there as long as possible, right? Mm-hmm.
0: It'll be uh, interesting to see how the operation changes and evolves when they do start flying actual passengers and crew. But I do want to get into our crew launch because we do have one coming up. Chris and I are taping this on Tuesday afternoon on the 13th, and we do have a Soyuz crew launch to the space station coming up very soon. Chris, you want to dive into that? Yeah, so
2: we're recording at 5 o'clock on Tuesday, and the launch is about six and a half hours from, or no, seven and a half hours from the time of recording. But if all goes to plan, the Soyuz MS-17 vehicle will launch at 1.45 a.m. on Wednesday, October 14th for, uh, and this is a really cool mission for a few reasons. One, it's the first that will demonstrate a super ultra fast track rendezvous with the station taking just two orbits or three hours from liftoff to docking. That will be a record for crew to the International Space Station, although it's a maneuver that they have practiced many, many times with the cargo resupply version of Soyuz, which is called Progress. So they practice this many, many times, and they're ready to debut it with crew. So that that's the big thing that we're looking for on this flight. But there are a couple of really wonderful and personal moments for the crew, Robin, that I know we right. were talking about before the show. Right. So if this goes on on October 14th, as planned, it will actually launch on Kate Rubens's 42nd birthday. Happy birthday, Kate. Kate is one of the three astronauts who will be on board the mission when it launches from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Very rare and not as common as you would expect to actually launch to space on your birthday. So a nice coincidence there. And another. Kind of wonderful coincidence, given the amount of education and experience you have to have to be an astronaut or a cosmonaut with Roscosmos. One of the other people on board, in fact, the only rookie on board the flight or first time flyer on the flight, I should say, Sergey Kudzverchkov was actually born in Baikonur, Kazakhstan, and will now become a person who launches from the city that he was born in. And that's very rare, really, very really rare. cool. Yeah. Even rarer than launching on your birthday, yes, because yeah. There's actually literally only one place that can happen. And that is the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. That's incredible. And a lot
0: of reasons to tune into the launch. um, And we hope everyone does. I think a lot of folks who listen to the Supercluster podcast have our app. And uh, we will be live streaming it on there. If you're listening to this, you've already watched the live stream. We hope you've enjoyed it. Chris, I heard about the fast trip to the space station because it was a really clickbaity headline in Russia Today the state-sponsored online uh, news magazine. I thought it was (laughs) very funny. And then the birthday, my only comment there is a happy birthday to Rubens. And I'm glad it's the number 42 because we in the (sighs) space program love that number. And shout out to our friend, Mary Liz Bender from Consider the Cosmos, who's also always pointing out that number in our industry and community. It pops up often. And Elon also calls it out quite often. Yes. (laughs) Online. Yes. <laughs> so, what, that's
2: Wonder, wonderful number. Yes. Yeah.
0: I love this uh, idea of someone launching to space from their hometown. That's a, a really amazing thing. And uh, that is the goal for, I mean, I, I wouldn't say 10 years from now, 20 years from now, maybe 50 to 100. We want launch pads everywhere. We want air launches from everywhere. There's uh, lots of projects out there. Where we will be seeing missions, maybe not crew missions, but, you know, missions being flown and and returning around the world. And I know we had some news this week about Sierra Nevada continuing to develop their cargo and even their crew version of the Dream Chaser spacecraft. Uh, Those are just one of the projects. Mm -hmm. One of the most special things about the Dream Chaser is that it could could land at at most airports around the world. That's an
2: extremely special
0: thing considering spaceflight
2: it really is and it really speaks to how carefully they considered the design of this vehicle and right. w- the various ways that that dream chaser could be used because the the whole problem usually with spacecraft that are returning from space is that they use very toxic propellants right. called hypergolics that when if you land on a regular runway you'd have you couldn't get anyone near it because of the potential right. hazard and and i mean they're very deadly and very combustible as well very toxic but the beauty of the Dream Chaser design is that it sheds all of that off in the one small part of it that actually burns up in the atmosphere. So when it lands, it's actually safer than a commercial airliner because there's no propellant on board. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it, and you can walk right up to it as soon as it lands. It's, it's a really ingenious design that you know they, they wanted to bake in because what they're looking at too is not just cargo resupply to the station. They're also looking at doing science programs with the united nations dedicated flights for countries that don't have space programs and haven't been to space before and i mean let's just say one of those missions happens to have a large grouping of of experiments there from africa wouldn't it be nice to be able to land your spacecraft in africa and return those experiments directly to the nations immediately right
0: right immediately yeah 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 right now this week the international Astronautical Congress is happening virtually. It was supposed to be in uh, Dubai this year, obviously, because of the pandemic, everything is virtual. But at IAC, nearly four years ago, I believe it was 2016, the same IAC where Elon started talking about his plans for, for landing humans on Mars, the United Nations did a joint announcement with the Sierra Nevada Corporation to announce a global space program in which smaller nations who don't typically have access To space, can launch uh, smaller payloads aboard the Dream Chaser. So these would be rideshare basically put together by the UN. The thing about that project is it's been four years and there's been a change in leadership at Sierra Nevada. So I'm not hearing anything more about that project, but I do think that Sierra Nevada is positioning itself as a company to be a contractor for lunar habitats and, of course, the Dream Chaser. Becoming a crew spacecraft one day. Chris, there's only one contract right now to Sierra Nevada for cargo to be delivered to the space station and back, correct?
2: That's correct. Part of the um, second round of commercial resupply services contracts um, for which SpaceX and Northrop Grumman are the other two providers, with Sierra Nevada being the third. Right.
0: It's an exciting prospect. We don't really talk a lot about Sierra Nevada Corporation, but they have been working behind the scenes very hard to prepare that cargo
2: spacecraft. Um, oh, yeah. And in fact, its first flight up to the space station will is currently slated to be the Vulcan rocket's second flight and second, second mission that will help certify that rocket and the BE-4 engine, which we were just talking about for Blue Origin, but it's also the engine on United Launch Alliance's Vulcan rocket. Right. And Dream Chaser will be one of those flights that helps certify that rocket and that system for larger operations insane that Vulcan's second flight will be a space I know,
0: <laughs> That's crazy. Well, the Falcon Heavy's first launch was a roadster. So, I guess it's not You're that true. insane. Oh, wait, we should talk about the Roadster. Our friends Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, we have to first mention our friend Michael Sheets over at CNBC. He was the first that I saw to update everyone on where the Roadster is and Starman. Starman made a close approach to Mars last week, which is Funny, because Mars is really close to Earth this week, also this month, actually, which is, is funny. Chris, going back to that mission, I remember the public relations around it was a little uh, muddy in terms of like, where is this actually going? What is this actually doing? I think we all determined that Elon was launching this car toward a Mars orbit, which yes. means Mars, not Mars, but near Mars orbit of the sun right? Is that yes. the,
2: the most apt way of putting it? It is. Yeah. I think at the time, how, how did I, I, I very similar. I took to calling it a Mars distance orbit of the sun as, that, as yeah, to that, what they were aiming for. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So let's go ahead and mission accomplish that because yeah, got near Mars. Yeah. Michael sheets broke the story. Good for him. And then I saw a ton of tweets after that um, reminding, Hey, Chris, honestly, it's I forgot about that we even did that. (laughs) I just it's been in in relativity. It's like the pandemic has been long. Let's call it long. And it feels
2: like the roadster was longer than it was for me. I don't know why I forgot about it. (laughs) I'll second that. I think what got me was the fact that I, I remember at the briefing, Elon saying there's a very, very, very small chance that like a long, long time from now, it might hit Mars. And in my brain, that totally equated to, oh, well, it won't come near Mars for like a long, long time. So then, when all a of a million sudden, years it surprise, know. Like, yeah. it, it did. It was like, oh, okay. And
0: then everyone got really mad about planetary contamination and things like that. But let's just, yeah, hope, the car and- doesn't, let's just hope that it doesn't hit Mars in our lifetime. Well, <laughs>
2: well fair. But I would say it would be worth it. Pointing out that if it did hit Mars in the future, that the car will not survive atmospheric entry to Mars. And most of the second stage of the Falcon 9 won't survive it either. So, yeah. yeah. The problem will solve itself. Hopefully. Robin, that's the point in the movie where, like, the music cues and the thing that made it to the ground. And, like, a little hand comes up, like, hello. That's the part (laughs) of the movie you just described.
0: (laughs) Speaking of movie, we had some... Cool SpaceX news this week. Ashley Vance, who wrote the famous Elon Musk book that everyone owns and half of you didn't read, he made a deal with HBO, he will be a producer, on a six-part limited series documenting the early days of SpaceX and them trying to launch their first rocket, which was very dramatic. Chris, can you go ahead and spoil it in like one sentence?
2: <laughs> Spoil it in up. one sentence? Oh, yeah, uh, uh there was a- They're going to take us to Mars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a spoiler of the whole show, but from what I understand, the HBO show will be based on Ashley Vance's Elon Musk biography, which was published, I believe, in 2017. It will document the early days when Elon was with a small team down in Hawaii trying to launch their very first rocket and of course the problems and issues they Everyone knows this story. They came down to their last penny, their last launch. If it didn't work, that would have been it. There was also a lot of drama with the Russians and Elon trying to buy an, an old ICBM or a bunch of old ICBMs. Yes. It's a very interesting story. I'm looking forward to it. The The project, however, is in very early stages. From what I understand, they just hired uh, one of the writers from Star Trek Beyond, uh, which that's an interesting, inspired choice. Star mm, Trek right doing a basic show. Yeah. So that should be really cool. They are like I said they are in really early stages according to Deadline. Deadline had no idea what they were writing about. The the blurb that they wrote for the show Chris said that it's Elon and a team of five guys on the island in Hawaii launching the crew mission with Bob and Doug. That's the sentence they had for the synopsis of the show. And I'm like, all right. Oh. That's fine. <laughs> Look, I can't even judge him. I used to be an entertainment reporter. There was a time when I would have easily made that mistake. Yeah. Yeah. When I read it, I, I thought it was really funny. But I if it's the book is based on Ashley Vance's book, that is the book about the early days of SpaceX. Also, interestingly enough, Ars Technica space reporter Eric Berger has a book also coming out yeah. about the struggle on the Hawaii Island. I keep thinking about Lost. Like I keep picturing Elon with the smoke monster. I need to rewatch Lost or something. But anyway, um, uh, Elon went to this island. It's the island from Lost and they launched their first rocket. It was a suborbital, the Falcon 1, and it was a very long struggle to get that rocket off the ground initially. And it should make for a, a fun, dramatic Social network type vibe, maybe, television show. How do we get hired to write for this um, show? Chris, <laughs> let me tell you, I think there's still a movie in here somewhere. So let HBO have a oh. television show. We'll let HBO <laughs> have a television show. But there's, there's multiple movies to be made about what's going on here. And I think there's a film to be made about the way SpaceX has impacted people in the world, the people that work there, the people in their orbit. There's a story about SpaceX trying to build Starship. There's a story about them launching that first human. There's a bunch of movies to be made, a lot of stories to be told. Chris, I I think some people might be offended by this, but I think that SpaceX is becoming the new NASA and not replacing NASA, but becoming as big as NASA in the public eye. And what do we have from NASA, Chris? A million amazing movies. We have Hidden Figures. We have Apollo 13. We have First Man. We have Contact. We have like Interstellar. Any movie that has NASA right in isn't Right. The Right Stuff just premiered. Also, I wanted to mention that. Thank you for bringing it up, Chris. I haven't watched it, but people I mean, are it. saying really good things about it. I actually accidentally drove by the set and onto the set a couple of times down at Cape Canaveral. saw people filming. I'm excited to watch it. I'm a big fan of that first movie, The Right Stuff, based on the book. A little fun trivia, if you're a fan of Interstellar. When Christopher Nolan started production on Interstellar, he sat the cast and crew down and they all watched the right stuff to get into that like aesthetic and that mood to shoot Interstellar. It's a big inspiration wow. on a lot of people and a lot of filmmakers. It's one of the reasons I love space. Films are important for, in the world of space exploration, and so is television. Space is about awe and the unknown and mystery and excitement and adventure. And that is what film and television does for us as well. So the two go together like milk and cookies, and that's why we always talk about film and television on this program. Both Chris and I are, you know, filmmakers in our own way, and I think uh, you'll you'll all we won't criticize stuff on here too much because I think when it comes to space, we we hold space exploration dear to our hearts. So when we watch things that miss the mark or are inaccurate, it bugs us. But right stuff. I would would go back to that film as very accurate in, in the storytelling of that program and of those individuals. But I also love films like Contact that are on the fringe, but also include NASA and talk about space. So I love both. I just, when you talk about space, I think in movies and television,
2: it's fun to entertain, but I think just a tiny bit of education would be great too, in any form. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, like there are some things that you can forgive in, in space movies, right? Because it's always easy to get into the mindset of, oh, well, that's not how it would happen. But then when you're actually writing it for dramatic purposes, and I, and I say this as a screenwriter as well, you do have to change things sometimes and and, right. and, sque- and squeeze things. What what tends to really annoy me is when a movie really, really tries and then gets something really basic wrong, like right, right, not right. having a fuel tank and your engine yeah. is firing and it's like, yeah that's a problem but uh, you know other other things you, you can you can shrug off because the movie's good yeah. yeah exactly
0: i think space people will forgive a lot i look space people secretly love armageddon i think a lot of people will trash armageddon <laughs> space people low key love armageddon they love it because they, it makes them cry that's it that's i mean it makes them cry and like we get to see two cool space shuttles and trust me any space fan who has been to Kennedy Space Center or worked at Pat 39A or been on a tour or something, they love seeing that place in movies. So that's why I said contact and Armageddon because Kennedy Space
2: Center is heavily featured in both of those films. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, Armageddon is one of those movies where they didn't really try to get the <laughs> space fight like, sequence would, right. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> that, but, but that's what oddly makes it work from the movie because once you realize that you're just like, Oh, okay. Like, <laughs> never, never mind. Like, okay, I, I get what we're doing here. And, and, oh and it works. And it works, it does, you know.
0: It does work. I was just like recalling everything. And I just I think uh, on the commentary track on the DVD of Armageddon, I believe a very drunk Ben Affleck said something along the lines of, like, I tried to go to Michael Bay and say, Hey, wouldn't it be easier to train astronauts to drill rather than train drillers to be astronauts? And Michael Bay told him Michael Bay told him to shut the F up. <laughs> and that was it. You just had to continue filming after that. So, you know, you could tell you probably knew back then that, yep, Michael Bay was gonna make Transformers because that is how he <laughs> sees space exploration. That's his extent of space exploration. And I, you know what? I'm all for it. I am the first in line to see all of those movies. So, you know, space is space, and I'll watch space anywhere. And uh yeah transformers even i'll take it but we were talking about asteroids chris and i'm glad you one of us brought that movie yeah. up <laughs> The osiris rex mission is yes. about to hit a huge milestone so the osiris rex mission just to recap we sent a probe to asteroid Bennu in deep space to observe it to scan it to learn the topography of the asteroid to get an idea for its chemical makeup. And I think very recently we spotted some organics that we need to explore a little more, but that's part of the bigger mission of Osiris-Rex to go to this asteroid venue, which it's already there. And it's going to do this like, quote unquote, what were they calling touch it? And go. it touch the and go. go. Touch and go. Yeah. And it's, they're going to blow a bunch of air on the surface of the asteroid and it's going to kick up regolith like dust sand layered on top of the loose layer on the surface of the asteroid and we're going to try to capture that regolith and bring it back to earth which is pretty insane it will be the first time
2: we've done this yeah so it'll be the first time that nasa has done it Mm -hmm. jaxa the japan aerospace exploration agency has gotten a sample Right collection successfully not nasa's first try at getting a sample collection so that landing is going to be we're going to hope that parachute pops unlike last time oops uh, but this is really cool and and it is doing a lot of things that are first of its kind at this asteroid named benu first off it's worth mentioning that this mission launched on the 50th anniversary of the airing of the first star trek episode so it really has kind of lived up to that where no you know, of that idea of a strange new world, because Bennu has really been nothing what we have expected it to be in, in, in a lot of regards. It's throwing right. wonderful surprises at us, but also really helped the team understand what these near-Earth asteroids or near-Earth objects, those two can be used kind of interchangeably. All near-Earth asteroids are near-Earth objects, but not all near-Earth objects are near-Earth asteroids, but sometimes you'll hear those terms used interchangeably. Right. But part of this is not just the sample collection, which is going to be cool because it's a little probe that sticks out that that will actually deploy down. And then it will fold up its solar arrays like the fighters in uh, Star Wars and uh, ease itself down toward this little place called Nightingale on Bennu. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the Nightingale region is only about as big as a couple of parking spaces for a standard car and huge building-sized jagged boulders on every side of it. So that's what, that's what the spacecraft has to descend itself down into, collect the sample, and then get back up. And then once they collect the sample, the first attempt at this will be on October 20th, and they have two additional tries beyond that at a different location should the first attempt fail for some reason. But after they get back up into a stable orbit of this asteroid, they're gonna use the spacecraft's cameras to first check to see if they have anything, in the collection tin Mm -hmm. and then if they do they're actually going to spin the spacecraft so they can measure how much its mass has increased by to figure out how much material they've collected and then if they've collected enough they'll put it in the sample return (laughs) container for ultimate return to earth so
0: chris we're expecting the return of that sample in the utah desert what year is that going to return 2023 Well, that's relatively soon. And, you know, I think one of the big things we talked about um, when this mission was was launched from Kennedy Space Center, the way the the principal investigator, Dante Loretta, he's like Indiana Jones for us. He's uh, an asteroid hunter, which is really awesome. And uh, it's him and his incredible team that is behind this mission. He really stressed the carbon element of Bennu and the fact that Bennu could end up being seen as this giant tape recorder. That has been flying around the solar system for a few million years. And it does offer probably a textured or layered history of the formation of the solar system. There's a couple of things in there that we might learn, especially about the origins of life, a very small chance. But the fact that they're seeing these kinds of like, you know, markers for organics is really exciting at this point.
2: It really is. And I mean, it's it's not just a potential insight into how the inner solar system formed. It's it's also uh, an insight into how the formation of, uh, in particular, Venus, Earth, and Mars, because solar system, all, kind of fo- all the planets kind of formed a little closer to the sun than they are now and migrated out to their current locations. So it's also a good little record of how the gravity of the three major terrestrial inner planets could have torn apart and prevented other larger bodies from forming between them. Kind of mind-boggling. And just one of the
0: many missions that we're pondering, you know, looking at if there's life in our solar system. Right now, we we actually, Supercluster just published a piece on uh, the Europa Clipper, NASA's flagship (laughs) mission to Europa. And right now it's climbing uh, on the top of our space. We're excited about that conversation, but there seems to be uh, something that really is holding it back to Earth, and that is the lack of a launcher. Obviously, the Europa Clipper is assigned to launch on the Space Launch System, which has, you know, as everyone knows, has been uh, delayed for many years, has gone over in you know, millions and billions of dollars in costs. You know, a lot of people are proposing and, and talking about launching Europa Clipper on Falcon Heavy with a modified kick stage, Chris, do you have any insight into this you'd want to share?
2: Yeah. So this is one of these really, really high profile science missions that in some ways, unfortunately, in other ways, you can understand where they're coming from, but has been shackled by Congress by law. It, this mission <coughs> must launch on the SLS rocket. And the original idea behind this was that it would go on the upgraded version of SLS, which would have what's known as the exploration upper stage, much, much more powerful than the interim stage it will use, which is uh, just the second stage of the Delta IV heavy rocket from ULA. And and the idea there was that the larger version of SLS would be able to do a direct Jupiter insertion. So there would be no flybys, there would be no multi-year trek, it would just aim it and shoot it right to Jupiter save a lot of time sounds great in theory except that version of SLS is not going to happen until at least 2026 2027 at the outright earliest if it happens at all and that blows the window for the Europa Clipper mission but it's still shackled to a less powerful version of SLS which can still kind of do it but not as efficiently as the others And that sort of brings you into, okay, well then, if that version of SLS isn't optimal and it might not even be ready, why not put it on a Falcon Heavy instead? Dramatically lower your launch cost for that, because even though NASA would be the owning agency of the SLS, they still have to pay all of the contractors to build all the components of the vehicle. So you'd save an incredible amount of money by putting it on the Falcon Heavy, and yeah, you'd have to do some gravity-assist flybys, but so has every other mission we've sent to the outer planets so far that have entered orbit of the outer planets. So yeah, at what tough point? Yeah, uh, uh, at what point want that part of the law changed to free it up so that it can actually launch when it's right? When Chris says a dramatic change,
0: a difference in price, we're looking at nearly a billion dollars versus nearly 150 to 200 million. Yeah. That is that is the difference in costs for launching the Space Launch system with this payload versus launching the payload with the Falcon Heavy. That is a dramatic insane price difference and just goes to show that the space program continues to be uh, greatly affected by the inner workings of Congress and, you know, the dealing and the the politicking of everything. And, you know, every election, every election year, or, you know, even the, the midterm elections, we always talk about, oh, well, you know, every four years, every two years, there's a reset, there's a reset. Yeah, that's true. We always acknowledge it, but there's never anything that uh, can be done about it because of, cycles, and it's all about who has power in the house, who has power in the Senate. And it changes so often that when the space program is judged by policy and, operates due to policy that is uh, outside of its control that can really mess up a lot of programs. It's canceled a lot of programs, you know, that's why the people think that the commercial crew program accomplished this insane feat of launching Bob and Doug to space. The real feat there was keeping that program alive for Bob and Doug to launch on it. That was the real feat because that, that is the challenge of the space program is not being reset. With a new administration and, and that could have easily happened.
2: It could have in some ways, you know, there's always this period for programs where you would get where you get really, really nervous, mm-hmm. right? That that have been started. And, and like to take this back, so in President Obama's first term, when the commercial crew program became a thing, and then he is up for reelection in 2012, and you're sitting there just going, Well, okay, if he loses, commercial crew could go away. Right. In favor of Orion. Mm-hmm. Right. There's always there's always something, yeah. And there's and there's always something, but then you hit this critical point in, in these programs development, like and we'll keep with commercial crew, where it didn't matter in 2016 from the commercial crew program standpoint. I want to make that very clear because it mattered to a lot of people who won the 2016 election in the U.S. But from a purely commercial crew standpoint, didn't really matter if Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump won. Because that program was way too far along and way too necessary at that point to touch. And the only thing Congress can really do is just not fund it at the level that the president wants, which is the entire problem of the commercial crew program can be traced to that. (laughs) But then you've got SLS and SLS is a very different thing. And I wanted to start with commercial crew. For this reason, because you know, we don't we don't like to say things are jobs programs, but people are, have kind of just admitted that that's what it is, right? Because no one, no one from that's Louisiana what their their own a,
0: employees call it a jobs program. When you talk they, to Orion and SLS employees, <laughs> they refer to it as that.
2: Yeah, because no one from any state that Northrop Grumman operates in, which is most of them is going to vote to cancel SLS because Northrop Grumman builds the abort system and the solid rocket boosters. Right. No one from Louisiana is going to vote to cancel it because that's where the core stage is built. No one from Florida is going to cancel it because that's where the engines and the launch site are. No, and, and, and you can see I'm not through that entire list yet. And you can already see the number of people who will not vote against this program because it does drive a large section of the economy, maybe not a large section of the state's overall economy, but certainly regions of the state that could collapse without it. That's a tricky problem for politicians to figure out and, and to thread. And I'm not saying the decisions about SLS are easy and its funding perspective, nor am I even saying it was it was a mistake to begin with or a mistake now, just that things evolved very, very rapidly and, and far more rapidly than anyone, including you and I, Robin, were, were right. prepared for, Right. you know.
0: To cap this, uh, there was a lot of news updates, Chris, more than we thought. Oh, I love brilliant. how we kept saying, segue- you can always segue into a news story. Um, a lot's been happening lately. We did want to mention that because we were talking about commercial crew, that that crew one launch has moved off of Halloween, by the way. It uh, has, yeah. Yeah. And um, it's moved into, s- they're saying probably mid-November. There's been an issue with the GPS Falcon 9, not even related to a NASA mission. But Chris, what, what are we making of this issue?
2: Yeah. So Elon tweeted that it was a problem with the gas generators right. in the Falcon 9's engines. And this is interesting for a few reasons, because these Merlin engines are very, very reliable right. engines. And you, you think nine of them... Oh, sorry. 10 of them, nine on the first stage and and the vacuum-optimized one on the second stage, have flown, I mean, God, SpaceX is in the 90s right now, so 90-whatever times six, Mm -hmm. and some of those restart on almost every single mission for the landing. So, I mean, these things have an incredible amount of flight history. So to have a problem, you can see why Elon was immediately coming down here, right? Right, 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 right. right. Now, the interesting thing about this is that this is that it happened on a new booster but a couple days later a flight proven booster flew for the third and, time and came home for the third time on Starlink 13. Yeah, and now we are also as of this morning we know that there's a Starlink flight this coming Sunday out right. of 39 off 39A that will also be on a flight proven booster.
0: Right.
2: And the other mission that's already been bumped is a new booster.
0: Right. You know so- what to make of that?
2: But the flight-proven ones seem to be going off. Now, this could be a couple of things, right? And here's why I wanted to bring this up, because you could read into that saying, oh, it must be a problem with the newer line of boosters, so all the previous ones are good to fly. That could be it. That could be part of it. Mm it. can also be that the calculated risk to continuing to launching Starlink flights, which are completely internal to SpaceX, outweighs the risk of doing that until you fully, completely close out the issue for paying customer flights. And of course, flights with human beings on them and lives on them. So not really certain if you can read a whole lot into that, but- they're yeah, just NASA's um, being and-
0: overly cautious, which that's fine. That's their choice to be. You know, yeah, they're, they're, they're the customer. So if the customer's like, hey, we just wanna like be extra square on this, then fine, you know?
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you know, it's it's worth noting that, you know, a problem with the gas generators on the ground on, on engine startup, you can abort and everything's fine. Right. If that happens on the single engine second stage, you're done. Like that mission is done. Right. So you can see why this becomes really, really important to figure out very quickly.
0: And I'm sure they will. I won't, I'm sure we'll have a new date very, very soon. Probably, hopefully in a week. To close out the show, Chris, I wanted to talk about You and I have been covering Starlink since day one, and we're starting now that they have a significant amount of satellites launched and terminals are out there, people are beta testing, but we're starting to see some results from Starlink Constellation. Uh, The Ho Tribe tweeted last week, they're in Washington state, what a difference high-speed internet can make. Our children can participate in remote learning, residents can access healthcare, we felt like we'd been paddling upriver with a spoon on this spacex starlink made it happen overnight and they thanked the washington state commerce department for introducing spacex and the tribe and this is sort of what we've been talking about for the last couple of years bringing internet to places and to people who did not have it and i know that sounds crazy that people don't have access to internet infrastructure, they don't even have the access to purchase internet. They don't, there's no infrastructure. And most of, okay, not most of the world, I think it's something like 49% of the world does not have this kind of access to the internet that we all enjoy and take for granted every day. I also understand that SpaceX provided Starlink terminals to emergency workers on the West Coast, specifically in Washington state, who are battling uh, these wildfires so Chris yeah. uh, what what do we make of this like there are they're surprising folks because we didn't think they Starlink would be at this operating level this quickly
2: I think what, what's surprising is how much of the testimonials we're hearing right yeah. like we always knew that I think Elon had said that they needed around 500 of them up there before they could start testing and of course there're um, and about uh, 755 have been launched to date. But I, I didn't expect the tribe. That that really that right, really yeah. hit home right, for me. Right, because right. we we I and mean, I think we talked on the last podcast about the use of Starlink in emergency situations, right? Which is something we've been hammering home a lot and how these internet constellations and our satellites can help us when we when the terrestrial network gets destroyed by natural environments. But it, it was this one that really hit it home because th- this has been the whole point of it from the beginning. Right. And the part of that tweet from the tribe that resonated most with me was when they said be able to access healthcare. Right. That that's how that's how remote some of these some of these tribes, right, still are. Where it, it can be hours to get to a health facility. And especially when we want to talk about mental health and psychological health care, access to the internet is Immensely important, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners experienced for the first time during this pandemic when it wasn't safe to go to your doctor's office, but you still had to see them. How invaluable was that internet connection and being whatever online doctor service you use? How invaluable was that? And now think of not even having the infrastructure, right, to even have an internet connection, right, to have access to that. That's where it hit home for me.
0: And a lot of the world. Lives like this. We, a lot of people are living in rural areas. A lot of folks are, don't have the kind of access to the internet that a lot of us and the folks listening to this podcast are used to. We, we kind of use internet. I mean, I live in, you know, near Washington, DC. I live in Arlington and Chris, you're down in Florida. And a lot of our listeners are in New York, LA, Chicago, a lot of urban areas. Internet kind of flows from the tap. Kind of like water, you know, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it goes out here and there and we get mad. When it goes out, that's how you know how important it is. Because look how quickly you can't exist without the internet. Like me and you, Chris, we can't exist without the internet. Like not even an hour probably. without With all the work that we do, we take, I feel like we're not even considering that there are folks out there who don't even have the option of having that kind of internet access and you know and, and we're not just you know we're not touting just SpaceX's technology here but we think it's important that obviously going back to our mantra here that space is for everyone it's important that we remind ourselves that launching i mean we're we're taking photos of rocket launches but what we're really covering here is the payload and what the long term mission is to launch this constellation and also Starlink yes it is a it's a company it's a business it's there to make money what do they want to do with that money that's how they're going to pay for starship there is literally, yeah. literally no other plan to pay for launching the first humans to mars it is the most complex expensive thing that we'll probably ever do and i think starlink is a good way to pay for that if they can get it working if they can get a good consumer market going and get people to purchase the service and it works and there's so many steps along the way, but the end of the road, they really need that revenue to pay for
2: a human mission to Mars. They do. And, but, you know, hearing some of these testimonials, I, I don't really think that they're going to have a problem getting people to sign up. I mean, yeah. full disclosure, yeah. I, pl- I plan to as soon as it's available in my zip code. Right. I, w- I really want to go back to the tribe for a minute and the access to healthcare that this enables because... What you were saying, Robin, right about how we take the internet for granted and like you and I need it to do our jobs and it's very convenient for us and it's annoying when it's not there, but it's important to really recognize everything that it does give us, right? And that access to healthcare is one of them. And and it's one of the primary reasons and and also just the wealth of knowledge that exists on online for educational purposes. It's why the UN does say that internet access is a basic human right right? and it's a right that we see companies just aren't interested in installing the infrastructure, like the physical lines and cables that still have to go places, even though you think it's Wi-Fi, you know, it comes into your house on a wire. Right. It only becomes Wi-Fi in your bedroom or your living room, wherever you have your Wi-Fi router. And if you don't have that line, you don't have Wi-Fi. Right. So that's what we mean by like, it's it's a basic human right because of everything that it can enable. And the fact that we're seeing it right now already and it's not even in like proper beta test yeah
0: yeah yeah it's it's like going into beta it's not even yeah you know so to see it yielding results already at least in a very small way um obviously compared to what their big plan is it's a small way but imagine for that tribe and the folks who are having internet for the first time that is a big step for them and you know we can only go off of what we're seeing we saw a testimonial video We saw a comment, um, obviously, we need to see what the long-term impact of the internet service will be on these communities. How much is it going to cost? How much infrastructure will need, you know, even though it's just a a dish that looks like a UFO, how many of these are you going to need for different places? And, you know, there's a million questions to be asked. What we're saying is we're starting to see early results. They're positive. We're seeing a lot of great feedback on the speeds too. So I'm not going to pretend to get into that, knowing from what I understand, it's fast, as fast as Elon has been saying it will be.
2: You know, I think one of the other factors that's going to be interesting to see in testing, how portable are those receiving stations? That's another question, right? Right. yeah, And those terminals, because I know a lot of people are also interested in this, uh, you know, on on a a personal side, you know, to, to saying, hey, like, what if I want to just take my Starlink terminal from the roof of the house? because I'm going camping, but right. like, I still want internet. Right. And can you do that? That's a fascinating question. I mean, imagine being able to take your home internet with you. It's an, it's amazing, like, but that's another thing we need to see how easy that element is.
0: Imagine owning a home terminal and it also came with a smaller car terminal. I don't know. I feel like there, this business can grow into a lot of different things when you Have such a small receiver and if it's only one source of power that that can be plugged into a home or a car or you know a generator out camping or something that could be very that's an interesting question yeah and you know where we need internet really good consistent internet at cape canaveral sometimes (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've, i've already sent a note and elon i know that you listen to some of our podcasts so if you're listening I've asked you before. I'm asking you again. We need a Starlink terminal down at Kennedy Space Center. I will ask you again next time I see you at Kennedy. But we could really use one. I, and I know that our buddy Declan uh, told us he's the creator of Flight Club. And shout out to him really quick because a lot of uh, Supercluster fans saw uh, John Krause took that incredible photo of the Falcon 9, the Starlink 13 Falcon 9, transiting the sun. Oh. Um, <laughs> wow. That, the, the photo went out in our newsletter. It's on the website. You can check it out anywhere. Elon Elon said that it should be the flag of Mars. We sent a note to them saying we would happily license it to you. And if they wanted us to make a flag, make it into a flag, we can make it into a flag. So James Gleason, if you're listening, I'm going to hold Elon to that. I'm going to make this flag and it better be the flag that goes to Mars. And we have to pay John for it. <laughs> So thank you, Chris, for being on the show. Um, also, we should shout out Trevor Malman, who took also an incredible transiting the, the sun photo of the Falcon 9. And Michael Seely, also an incredible yes. photo. But also Trevor took a video, which was a knockout, like incredible video of everyone shooting uh, the photo. So, oh, um, I right oh, I haven't yeah, yeah, seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elon commented on that too and said one of the greatest shots you've ever seen. And that's absolutely true. Great work to all the Cape photographers, including our own John Krause. Uh, we will be back next week. We've got a crew launch. Hopefully w- when you're listening to this, it has happened. Happy birthday to Kate Rubin. Chris, any last thing that our listeners should know about before we sign off for the week? Not not this
2: week. There's we never- covered everything. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but I'm sure with IAC wrapping up, there'll be a lot of news to unpack next right. week. Yes, and we're going to be keeping an eye
0: on IAC. And uh, Spacecom is coming the week after that. And as Jamie said, that's where Supercluster will be debuting, the Astronaut Database. Just a reminder to register. Check our social media. We have the links up everywhere. Thank you so much, Chris. And I will talk to you next week.
2: Sounds good.